Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad to see you all here this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God.
You are, you're unchangeable, you're 
Father, it's because you are God alone that we've come to worship today. We've come today to open our hearts to you, to declare your greatness and to declare how much we need you. Thank you for being present with us here in this place. May our worship honor you and please you and do something new in our lives through your spirit. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It's a joy to come together and worship our God, and we're glad that you are here. Let me just highlight a few things in the life of the church. Wednesday evening, uh, ministries are on regular schedule. Next Sunday morning is Palm Sunday, and uh, I know it's beginning of break week at the college, but we will have services at 8, 29, 40, and 11. And also next Sunday, the children will be waving palm branches, and it's not limited to children. If you'd like to join in, you can, you can do that. It'd be fun uh, to sort of recreate Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But there's information in the bulletin about uh, that for next Sunday. Uh, if you're going to be here on Easter and you are looking for an opportunity for ministry, we could use some people to help in children's church that day. It's a great opportunity just to uh, spend some time with our children, help them learn a little bit more about Jesus. And so if you're interested in that, uh, if you can help with that, uh, you can contact Pastor Cindy. On Good Friday, April 6th, we are hosting a prayer event. And this is going to be a, a, an event in the community room, in the gym, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And you're invited to come and go as you would like. Uh, there will be 10 destinations on this journey through the cross. And we, uh, some of them are interactive, some just reflective. But uh, it's an opportunity for you to think about uh, the death of Christ, the cross, the things surrounding that in perhaps a new way. And it, uh, it's, we invite children uh, and, and adults as well to be a part of this gathering. So if you're, there, if you're here around in town, I invite you to stop by some point during that day from 10 to 6. If you're interested in being baptized Easter morning uh, in 745 service, we'd love to have you do that. I'm hosting a class this week. It says Tuesday. It's actually Wednesday. So just note that Wednesday, 4 o'clock, and uh, we'll be a part of a class for preparing those who are going to be baptized. And also I'm offering a membership class. This will probably be the week after Easter. So if you're interested in joining, uh, let me know, and we're getting the class together. 
There are a number of prayer concerns here in the bulletin, and um, I want to uh, to mention a couple of things about uh, the people, who, the, the deaths that have occurred recently. Uh, Mary Ballard uh, died this week. Mary's the mother of Rosalind Danner and Marilyn Hyler, and her service will be Tuesday. Visitation at 10 o'clock here at the church, and the service will be at 11 here at the church. And um, Martha Woolsey Wacker, uh, her memorial service will be this Saturday at 10.30 at the Absolute of Houghton. So just notice that the service will be uh, at the Absolute up the hill. also want to mention that we got word this morning that there was a military coup in the country of Mali. And uh, Delinda Howard's son and daughter-in-law are missionaries there. And uh, it's basically locked down the country. I don't know a lot of details, but uh, word has gotten back about this, and I know they would appreciate our prayers as well as just the people of this nation in general. This time, we'll ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
As we prepare to pray together, if you would like to come and pray at the altar, I invite you to join me. Otherwise, please be seated. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your grace and for your mercy in our lives. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We come to worship you. We have many desires in our hearts for what we want our life to be. Father, today we're asking that you will shape those desires into the desires of Christ. That our yearnings and, and, and the passions of our lives would be the yearnings and the passions of Christ. That everything about Him would so invade us that we would become like Him. Father, we pray today for this world that is so filled with trouble and hardship and difficulty. And we ask, Father, that you will work miraculously in this world. We do pray for the people of Mali at this very difficult time and frightening time. And we pray that you will work in such a way that it will be evident that you are in control. We pray for your people there to be a voice of reason and hope. Father, we pray for the burdens that are on our minds and hearts today, people who are dealing with illness and pain, people who are grieving, people who are struggling with the future, decisions that need to be made. People who are struggling with accomplishing tasks that are vital to the next stages of life. We pray, Father, for your mercy to help us and to give grace and comfort and healing and wisdom. Father, thank you for your power at work in your people. We pray, Father, that during this Lenten season, our focus will continue to be upon Christ, upon the cross, and all that you have done for us through your Son. Father, hear our words of thanksgiving. Hear our prayers of your continued help. And we ask this through Christ in whose name we pray, remembering the prayer he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Um, they changed the scripture reading to start at chapter 20, or uh, verses 24. So it's um, the gospel reading from Luke. Please stand. And we'll start at 24 and go to 51. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was the, considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without any, without any purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you do not have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with his, the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what, it is, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Please Please remain standing for the worship song.
Father, we want to give honor and glory to you. As we continue in worship, help us to do just that. Let us have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a world in which there's a lot of opposition to Christ and his followers. I was reading the other day about a court case in, I think it was in California, <clears throat> where, <clears throat> excuse me, where uh, a teacher in a high school continually uh, spoke against Christianity and um, ridiculed Christianity. And one of the students in the class was a Christian and he and his family filed a lawsuit against the teacher to stop. And the circuit court eventually said the teacher had every right to say whatever he wanted to about Christianity. And we hear those kinds of things and we go, oh man, I can't believe that. And there are, court, there are cases like that all over, all over the world. And there's, there's just a sense, this doesn't have to be something legal, but just this sense that, that people and the opposition to the faith is growing stronger and stronger. We know that there are places in the world where it's far worse. Where our brothers and sisters every day face the threat of real physical persecution and even death. Simply because they're followers of Jesus. It ought not to surprise us because that's the way God's people have been treated from the very beginning through the centuries. And it's certainly the image that that Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand as they finish up their time in the upper room and move into the garden. Jesus says to the disciples in verses 35 to 38 of Luke 22 that that the time is coming when the opposition is going going to be so great that it's going to be more difficult than they imagine. And they're going to have to think about it differently. He says, you know, when, when I sent you out before as the 70 to go out and, and tell people about me, how did that go? Did you need anything? No, it was great. It was awesome. And Jesus says, now when you go out, whatever you have, whatever funds you can gather, whatever protection you can get, get it because things are going to be different. Because when, when Jesus goes to the cross and when, the, when he is dead, when he's gone from the picture, the opposition feels empowered against his people. Before, when the disciples went out, they, Jesus is sort of this cult hero. And so if they said, we're followers of Jesus, people were saying, come on in, come to the house, we'll take care of you. Don't, you know, don't pay us anything. This is awesome. We love the opportunity to do this. Tell us about it. But now... They're going to be treated as outlaws. They're going to be outcasts because they don't want to be identified with, with Jesus who, and, and don't want to be identified with, with him because the religious people are, are going to hold that against them and their own life will be in jeopardy. And he says, you need to know things are going to be different. The opposition is going to increase. And as the opposition increases for them and for us, we are asking with the disciples, we're asking Jesus, what do we do about it? The 49th verse of this 22nd chapter in the New Living Translation, as they're in the garden, says, Lord, should we fight? Lord, should we fight? 
That's the question that we are continually asking ourselves. Lord, do we fight? What do we do about the opposition that's coming against us? What do we do about this world and this culture that's opposed to us? Lord, do we fight? We have swords. It's the same question that the Israelites are asking back in the, in the book of Zechariah. They've been in exile for 70 years. They've come back. They've started to rebuild things in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. The temple, which is the place that represents them as God's people. The place where they worship. The place where they encounter God. It is, it is the symbol of, of being God's followers. And the nations around them don't want the temple to be finished. They don't want it to, to come to completion. Because they don't want them to, to once again be God's people. And they're trying everything they can to prevent that. And the people are saying, what do we do? And we come to chapter 4. And, and the Lord says to Zechariah, this is how it's going to take place. This is how the, the, your enemies are going to be overcome. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. You're going to have to think about this differently than you have typically thought about it. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples and what he's telling us. As we encounter opposition in this world and we're asking him, Lord, do we fight? And he says, well, let me, let me tell you what, how I want you to respond to that. I think one of the things that he's saying to us is that we, we need to commit ourselves to refuse to use strategies that are contrary to anything Jesus would do. If Jesus won't do it, we can't do it. That's hard for us because, you know, this, we like using the strategies of this world. And, and as far as we can tell, they work. You know, they, they, get, they get the end result that you want. They, they're successful. There's something in our minds that, that believe if we could just get enough money, then we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If, if we could have enough political clout, then we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we could enact enough laws, we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we could get enough public opinion behind us, we can bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we can have just enough influence then we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But power and public opinion and money and political processes are none of the strategies that Jesus uses. And if Jesus doesn't use them, we have to be careful about using them ourselves. But we're enamored by those strategies because we look around. These are the strategies that people use against us. And we're thinking, well, if they work against us, then why don't we use them against others? And Jesus says, it's not the way it works. In John 18, Jesus is meeting with Pilate and they're having this brief conversation. And out of that conversation, Jesus says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my people would stand up and fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. So I'm not going to tell my people to stand up and fight. And somehow we have to be able to present Christ in a way that is contrary to all the other ways in which the world tries to accomplish its goals and get to its ends. 
And help people understand that the way of Christ is not the way of this world. Craig Barnes, in his book, Hustling God, says that for Christians, the most deadly temptation is not about our goals, but the means we will use to get to those goals. And he goes on to talk about how people who have committed themselves to great things, to great dreams, to great passions, become so obsessed with them that they will do anything to accomplish those passions and dreams. And even in the church. Most Christians are probably not going to be tempted to start running numbers for the mob. But we are going to be tempted to believe that if we just use the right earthly strategies, we can get to the end that we dream about getting to for the kingdom of God. And so, what's a little compromise here or there? What's a little giving up of our honor? What's a little bit of doing what we know isn't quite right, but hey, it's getting us to the right end. And that obsession drives us. And Barnes goes on to say, this is why so many good people become mean people. That's why so many good people become mean people. Because we are driven by this obsession. And in the obsession, the end justifies the means. And so whatever it takes to get to the end, we'll do it. We just want to get to the end. And so in the church, we think what we need to pass this budget that does these things. And if we have to trample on what other people want to do, well, we do it. Because this is right. It's like a parent yelling at their child to be kind. You know the the irony of that. And we do these things in our work, we do these things in our homes, in our relationships, where we want to get to the right end, and we do whatever it takes to get to that end, even if it means trampling all over people. And we forget that, you know, we sometimes are willing to, to trample on people in order to talk to them about Jesus who is all about loving people. And we believe the end justifies the means, but it doesn't. And I'm, getting, I'm convinced more and more all the time that God is more concerned about the journey we're taking than the end we're hoping to get to. The journey is the point, not just the end. Because it's in the journey that we are, we are embracing Christ and we're looking like Christ and we're letting Christ change us and transform us. And that's all about the journey. And what's ironic is that if we, don't, if we aren't on the journey in the spirit of Christ, we'll never get to the end that we want. Certainly not the end that Christ wants for us. I suspect that this has some, this somehow is related to Jesus' words about taking a sword. That is one of the most confusing and odd things that Jesus, you think Jesus would say. You know, when you talk about biblical scholars trying to decide, you know, they, they, sometimes biblical scholars are debating, you know, is this, was this in the original text or was it not? 
And one of the rules they use for that is that they think back and say, would a scribe write this in in order to explain things or to make the people of the scripture look better? Or is it more likely that a scribe would take it out? This is one of those things that no scribe would ever put in. You know, no follower of Jesus would say, hey, Jesus is telling his disciples, take up a sword. It's not, it doesn't seem to be the spirit of Jesus. And when Jesus says, he says to them, that's enough at the end of verse 8. He's not affirming, okay, we've got enough ammunition to take on the Romans. I mean, what are two swords among this whole great horde coming to get him? He's rebuking the disciples. He's saying, enough of the swords. It's, it's like telling a little child a story about something beautiful and, and wonderful, princes and, and, and princesses and you know all this great stuff that you want to tell them. It's great moral to the story. And somewhere in the midst of the story, you, take, you, you just mention in passing a frog. And for the next 15 minutes, you're answering questions about frogs. You know... How does a frog hop like that? Why are the frog's eyes bulging out? What color was the frog? How long can a frog stay underwater? And you have all these questions. And you're thinking, enough of the frogs already. The story has nothing to do with frogs. I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, enough of the swords. This is not about swords. I was just trying to help you understand that the opposition is going to get strong. Because when they get to the garden and the mob comes and the disciples say, hey, we have our swords. Jesus is like, enough of the swords already. And when Peter takes a swing at Malchus, Jesus rebukes him and he heals the guy's ear. And our response is probably, way to go, Peter. Well, I'm glad Jesus healed his ear, but way to go, Peter. That's what we want to do, right? And it reminds us that often we... We, we are so willing to use the strategies of this world because more often than not, we use them to defend ourselves and to defend the interests of the kingdom than we do anything else. Most of the things that I hear about trying to shape the culture, trying to change society, trying, trying to work in the world, most of it that I hear is really trying to defend our rights. Trying to make life easier for us as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm all for life being easier. But I don't really think that's God's intention for our engagement of the culture. To try to make life easier for us. And yet, more often than not, that's what we keep coming back to. We keep coming back to... If, if I just, we just need to get our rights. We just stand up for our rights. We have rights. Uh, I, I think one of the great oxymorons of the world is Christian rights. Uh, you know, I, I don't see that in Jesus. And yet we are so willing to continually engage the culture in order to protect our rights. And as people talk about protecting Christians', Christians rights, initially, for a long time, my response was, well, of course. Now I'm starting to think the appropriate answer is, says who? Because I don't see Jesus protecting rights. 
And we're all about protecting the reputation of God and the reputation of the kingdom. And I think that's what the disciples are doing with the swords. When the mob arrives, we'll protect you, Jesus. And we're so concerned about protecting the reputation of God and the reputation of Jesus and the reputation of Christianity. But if God was so concerned about protecting his reputation, he never would have chosen that ragtag group of slaves in Egypt to be his people. He never would have had his son born to these commoners. He never would have hung out with with tax collectors and and, and prostitutes and, and people who are overt sinners. And he certainly wouldn't have allowed himself to end up on a cross. And yet we we keep believing and keep living and thinking that our role is to protect Christian rights. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the new show on ABC. I haven't actually watched it, but I've I've seen a few previews and I've read about it. It's called GCB. Uh, stands for Good Christian Bells. So that's a bit of an adjustment from the original title. But the, the, basically it's sort of an expose on uh, a church in the South and it, it exposes the backbiting and gossip and all this ungodly behavior among people in the church. And as you might well imagine, Christians are in a big uproar about this because it makes Christians look bad. And I don't really like the show. I don't like for Christians to look bad. But I, I came across um, a, a website this week that was talking about this and they were sending out a letter to their constituents and they claimed to have about a million and they, had, they, were in a, they were working on a boycott of the sponsors of this show, trying to get the show shut down and the sponsors not to, to uh, advertise on it. And so after a week, this letter came out and it said, uh, Victory, way to go. We're making a huge difference. Most of last week's sponsors heard you loud and clear and didn't sponsor this week's episode. They pulled their ads from the Christian bashing ABC program. Our organization continues to be disgusted with the new program, which is blasphemy at its worst. It mocks Christianity repeatedly. The anti-Christian program blasphemes God, Jesus Christ, God's church, and the Bible. As Christians, we will not stand for this Christian bashing program. Their actions are giving damaging, destructive perceptions of our religion. Together, we will defend our Christian values and beliefs. Networks like ABC continue to mock Christianity, and we will not put up with it. Now, when I read that, I thought, you know, part of me is like, I I get it. I I understand what they're saying because I don't like this show either. But a a few things came to my mind. One is maybe the first thing we ought to be doing is asking ourselves, is there any truth in this show? Is there anything about the way these people are acting that ought to shame us and change us? The second thing that came to my mind is this language of this letter sounds an awful lot like the language we heard and continue to hear at times from radical Muslims after the soldiers burned the Quran a few weeks ago. This is blasphemy. We won't stand for this. Now, I'm not saying that this organization is going to bomb the headquarters of ABC, but the vitriolic language sounds pretty similar. And this is language of people who are opposed to Christ, not people who follow Christ. And the other thought that came to me is if we're going to talk about protecting the reputations of people and being concerned about how we're misrepresented 
by things like television shows, then if we really care about people being misrepresented, are we standing up when Latinos are misrepresented? Or when African Americans are misrepresented? Or when atheists are misrepresented? Or when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses are misrepresented? Are we standing up for anyone who might be caricatured in a way that is is damaging? Or is it only about us? And I suspect it's only about us. That's what I tend to hear. But our goal on earth is not to increase our life of ease. It's to help people know Christ. And when you go back to the swords... And, and Jesus talking about them taking the swords and then he gets upset because they use the sword. I, I wonder if one of the reasons why Jesus mentioned the swords at all is to remind his disciples and to remind their enemies that, that we, and to remind us, that we have earthly weapons that we can use. We have all the same weapons that everyone else does. We can use boycotts and, and we can write Letters and, and we, can, we can slander people. And we can do all the same things that everybody else does. But because we're followers of Christ, we choose not to use those weapons. We've decided that even though we have those weapons at our disposal, we're not going to use them. Because when we read this passage and we move on to the cross, we see that the plan of God... It's not about using the weapons of this world, but the plan of God for reconciling the world to himself is love that culminates on the cross. And that's the calling that God places on every one of our lives. To be people who choose love as our ultimate weapon. We, just, we make the decision that if, if Christ doesn't use the strategies of this world, then we're not going to use the strategies of this world. If the plan of God for accomplishing his purposes in the world is, is the kind of love that culminates on the cross, sacrificial love, surrendered love, hearts of compassion and grace and patience and mercy, if that's the plan of God for Christ, then we realize that's the plan of God for Christ's followers. And if we're going, to, if we're going to, to be involved in the processes of this world to try to change the culture, then we're committing ourselves not, to, not so much about what defends our rights, but we're concerned about the rights of people who have no voice, about the innocent and the vulnerable and the people who can't stand up for themselves. That's who we're going to take the time and energy to stand up for. And we do that not so we get something in return, but we do it even though we don't get anything in return. And if you want to make a difference in the world, you want to cause people to step back and say, wow, that's pretty amazing. It's that kind of response. And at some point we have to believe and trust that God's plan of love that culminates in the cross is the only way to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. To continue God's plan of reconciling the world to himself.
through Christ. As Greg Boyd has said, the kingdom of God doesn't seek to conquer. It seeks to transform. Our goal is not to conquer the world. Our goal is is in Christ's grace to transform the world. And the only way the world will ever be transformed is if when they look at us, they see Jesus. Because we have so engaged our lives in God's plan for bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. When I read through the scriptures, it's very clear to me that God has, is completely secure in his plan for reconciling the world. No second guessing. This is his plan from before the foundation of the world. This is not plan B because plan A didn't work. This is the plan. And he's calling you and me to embrace the plan. To be people who take up our cross and follow him. People who are so enamored with Jesus that surrender and sacrifice and love and compassion and grace are the means by which we encounter the world that's opposed to Christ and opposed to us. The question that each of us faces is, do we believe that God's plan is right? Do we believe that God's plan and the cross is the ultimate plan that will change the world? Do we believe it enough to embrace it? Heavenly Father, it's a hard word for all of us. All of us. Lord, in our, when our natural inclination is to fight and to swing the, our swords... Remind us, help us that the kingdom is centered in the cross and give us grace to take up our cross and to be your witnesses even in this world that opposes you. Thank you, Father, for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Help us to embrace it. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.